Good morning, everybody. How are you doing? Good. Awesome. Hey, it's good to be together today. We're continuing our series in Acts. Uh, you know, when I was a freshman in college, I would use words like, this person changed their mind, you know, they had a, they, they had a new way of thinking about it, they might have had a conversion. But in my sophomore year of college, I read the famed The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn. It's a classic book, and in it, Kuhn uses the word paradigm shift. And suddenly, I started populating my papers with that word. I mean, it sounds so much more elegant than like, you know, a change of mind, a conversion. People had a paradigm shift, you know? You know how that is when you're a college student. You just find a new word, and suddenly it's in all your papers. Uh, Thomas Kuhn in that book describes paradigm shifts as this. A paradigm shift, according to Kuhn, arises when the dominant paradigm under which normal science operates is rendered incompatible with new phenomena facilitating a revolution in which a new paradigm is established. And paradigm shifts typically take place where there is an influential person within a field of knowledge, and as a result of a discovery, a monumental change of mind takes place for this person, and therefore, it cascades into a revolution within their field. Today, we're going to look at one of the most astounding paradigm shifts that ever took place in history. It's a shift that resulted in a revolution that didn't just sweep an academic field, but a revolution that swept the world and continues to sweep the world. The person with this revolutionary paradigm shift is the Apostle Paul, or as he was at the time, Saul of Tarsus. And the resulting revolution is the Christian revolution. F.F. Bruce writes, no single event apart from the Christ event itself has proved so determinate for the course of Christian history as the conversion of Paul. Think about the role that Christianity has played on the world stage. It is the most influential comprehensive perspective that has ever, ever been thought of. More people believe in the Christian faith. And this paradigm shift of Paul has been the, besides for Christ himself, has been the most significant event in propelling that movement forward. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at this event. This is undoubtedly one of the most significant events, not just for Christians, but in world history. So even if you're not a Christian and you're visiting today, this is good stuff. You're going to understand what got the Christian faith uh, in the position it is. And this is one of the most significant things. But first, let's back up a little bit. We've been going through, like I said, the book of Acts. We've been uh, looking at this book. The book of Acts is the second volume that Luke wrote, the Apostle Luke. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then, uh, and then he wrote the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is all about how Christianity spread and became established in the first century. And uh, we've um, been looking at uh, how Luke unfolds Acts. He starts off talking about the role of Peter and Stephen and Philip in launching the church. And then in Acts chapter 9, Luke introduces a character who is going to play a significant role in the rest of Acts. This is kind of like you've had these other people, and now suddenly here comes really the person who's going to have a significant, he's going to kind of take over the story, really. Okay? Uh, 15 of the 28 chapters in Acts are really about Paul's ministry. And this character is so significant that he goes on to write 13 of the books in the New Testament, the majority of the New Testament. And that person, of course, is the Apostle Paul. And Luke is so impressed with Paul's conversion that he not only tells it here in chapter 9, 
But he tells it two more times in chapter 20, chapters 22 and chapters 26. So think about that. I mean, Luke told Paul's conversion story three times. You know, Paul's conversion is astounding. It's a fascinating, unbelievable story. It's a story of a man who goes from being someone out to demolish the fledgling faith of Christianity to being its strongest advocate who is willing to sacrifice anything in order to advance it. It's so astounding that it results in a name change for this man. He goes from being the great persecutor, Saul of Tarsus, to being the great apostle, Paul the Apostle. And so to further and better appreciate this transformation, we really need to start with who in the world was Saul of Tarsus. So let's start there for a second. Who was Saul of Tarsus? Well, let's start with Tarsus, because that's not a name that we hear all the time, but Tarsus is a city. It's in Turkey. It's in south-central Turkey, and in the ancient world, Tarsus was a very significant place. It was one of the three top intellectual centers in the ancient world. You know, you had uh, Athens, you had Alexandria, and you had Tarsus. They're kind of like, you know, Harvard, Yale, Princeton. These were the places that were kind of places where people of intellectual heft came from. So there's a little bit of context for Tarsus. Saul's father granted Saul not only a strong Jewish faith, but also Roman citizenship. And we also know from his writings that Saul was multilingual. He, he, he uh, was fluent in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. He might have been fluent in more, but that's what we know. Uh, now, as far as his physical appearance, uh, Saul kind of in passing mentions, actually Paul mentions in passing, that he wasn't really anything, you know, unique to look at. We do have a second century account that describes Saul this way. He was small in size, bald-headed, bow-legged, well-built, with eyebrows that met, we call it a unibrow, rather long-nosed, Okay. Yeah, but what he lacked in physical beauty, he more than made up for with brains. We know from his extant writings that he was an incredible prodigy. Uh, we know this not only from his pedigrees, but just reading what he wrote. This was a man who was well-versed in the philosophy of his day, and he was well-versed in Jewish thinking. Think of it this way, if within Austria, in the 18th century, the way you measured prodigy was piano. You think about Mozart. In the first century world of Paul, the way you measured prodigy was how much capability a person had with Torah, their facility and comprehension of the first five books of Moses. And we know that in this regard, Saul was so capable that he was invited to study with the renowned rabbi and legal scholar Gamaliel. His nickname was Beautiful Law because when he taught, he made the first five books beautiful. Imagine making Leviticus beautiful. I mean, that's how good this guy was, right? <laughs> he holds a reputation in the Mishnah for being one of the greatest teachers in the annals of Judaism. And so having studied with Gamaliel, Saul of Tarsus, right, has the pedigree in order to be really kind of recognized as a Pharisee, a respected teacher of the law. He had secured that. Now, Saul was like his great teacher, Gamaliel, in terms of his brilliance, but he parted with Gamaliel when it came to what we do with people who don't have a strict adherence to the Jewish law. 
Gamaliel, we know, had a live and let live kind of approach to those who descended from a strict adherence to the Jewish law. But Saul was quite the opposite. Saul took his role models from those great zealots, for instance, like Elijah or Phineas uh, or the great founder of the Maccabean revolt, uh, uh, I always butcher this, Metathias, Metathias, Metathias. Um, and so, you know, these were the people that inspired Saul. These were the people that, that grabbed him. For instance, uh, let's take Phineas. Who was Phineas? Well, uh, we read in Numbers 25 that the men of Israel were tired of their desert wanderings and they were ready to be distracted. And so they took some Moabite girlfriends and they started worshiping the Moabite girlfriends' deities, okay? So, in other words, let's kind of put it down the bottom shelf. They're being unfaithful to their wives and they're being unfaithful to God. And God's ticked and God sends a plague and people are dying. And then we read in the midst of this, while people are in tears, okay? That there's this one guy who just doesn't care, and right in front of Moses and everybody else, he takes his Moabite girlfriend into his tent. This is like, what the heck? Well, Phineas was not having it. When Phineas saw it, okay, when Phineas saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. I like that the Old Testament's very descriptive. Thus, the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Okay, this is Phineas. And I, I know that when Saul was reading this story, he's like, that's a man of action. That's what we need. We, you know, there is a great danger when we ignore God's law, and we need to put a stop to it right away. Saul was drawn to these examples of zeal. Saul himself wanted to be not just an intellect, but a man of action, a man who takes whatever actions necessary to keep God's law respected and God's people on track. That was Saul. What about Saul and Christianity? You know, Saul would have been a contemporary of Jesus. He was only a few years younger than Jesus. But we don't have reason to believe that he ever met Jesus. What we do know is that he definitely knew of Jesus. Uh, he had been to Jerusalem many times, probably at the same time as Jesus. Uh, we don't know for sure. But he had definitely heard other Pharisees from the Sanhedrin discussing the self-styled prophet from Galilee and along with these Pharisees, he also believed that Jesus was a failed Messiah. After all, Saul would think everybody knows that a Messiah comes and he rescues Israel from the pagans. He judges the pagans um, and he vindicates his, God's people, Israel. What we see, although, is that Jesus himself was not, you know, judging the pagans and vindicating Israel. He ends up on a cross. How in the world can the Messiah end up on a cross? Everybody knows that this is the very definition of failure. Additionally, Jesus seemed to place himself above the law, above the temple. And so Saul concluded that Jesus and his followers were clearly bordering on being blasphemous, blasphemous and, and uh, were blasphemous and, and clearly delusional that this guy was a Messiah. They were just wrong. They're wrong about the law. They're wrong about the temple. They're wrong about the Messiah. And this kind of 
bad teaching must be stopped. It must be silenced. And that's exactly what Paul goes about doing. And in fact, in Acts chapter 7, 58, where we first hear about Saul, we learn that he was an accessory in the murder of Stephen, who was stoned. That while people were getting angry, he collected people's coats so they could be freed up to do the deed. And Stephen's death then uh, is a shifting point for Saul. Because from then on out, we learn that Saul was no longer an accessory, but a main player. Listen to what we read in Acts 1, 8, 1 to 4 about this. Saul heartily approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. Saul was laying waste ravaging. The picture of that word is like a wild boar going into a garden and just tearing it to bits, laying waste to the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is not somebody that you want to mess around with. This is a pretty kind of scary person. Paul began clearing Jerusalem of these Jewish heretics, these Christians who threatened the true religion of Judaism. He wanted to hunt them down, and he wanted to stamp them out, and he takes the lead in this persecution. He's imprisoning Christians, he's forcing them to recant their faith, and he's going to silence them through whatever means possible. Looking back on this time, Paul says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. A raging fury. Notice how Paul hunts down Christians. That then brings us to our text today, Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, we read this. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul has become a predator. Paul has become a predator. And when the Christians flee Jerusalem, he goes on the hunt. He's in pursuit. Look how Luke describes it here, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. This just rhymes with what we heard in Luke 8, 3, where Paul's described like a wild beast laying waste to the church. Luke picks up this theme and he says, Paul is breathing threats and murder. That's an outward breathing, actually. It's like a snorting rhino that's angry and ready to charge. It's like a bull that's just enraged and wants to trample whatever is in its path. Saul's mental condition is one of hostility and hatred. And so, uh, and so Paul goes to the Sanhedrin. Why does he go to the Sanhedrin? Sanhedrin is the top ruling body within Israel, okay? And he goes to the chief priest because the chief priest alone has the power of extradition. The Sanhedrin deals with all the internal states of affair for the people of Israel, okay? They have that right under Roman law. And uh, Paul goes to the Sanhedrin and 
Um, he's respected. He had all of the pedigrees, and he's granted permission to extradite Christians. Uh, we know that the high priest who officiated during this time period when Paul was there was Caiaphas. This is the same high priest um, who took a leading role in the trial of Jesus, insisting that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy and worthy of death. It's the same high priest, by the way, who Peter and John earlier in Acts um, have to stand before and are warned not to spread the gospel. So Caiaphas was good with giving letters to Paul so that he could pursue Christians. And so Paul sets his sight on Damascus. Why Damascus? Well, um, we know that the Christians had fled to Judea and Samaria, but Damascus is like 150 miles north of Jerusalem. And Damascus, I, my guess is, and a lot of scholars, is that that's about the farthest reach that Christians would have gone. So he wants to get it at its bud and drive it back and demolish it. But also Damascus was a place that there was a large Jewish settlement. At this time, Christianity is a Jewish movement. We did hear about the Ethiopian eunuch last week. Uh, in the next chapter, we're going to have Cornelius, who, um, the centurion, so we have these Gentiles that are just beginning to catch on, right? The Ethiopian eunuch might have been a God-fearer, but Cornelius clearly is uh, a clear, you know, Gentile. So Gentiles are beginning to catch on, but it's a Jewish faith, and the Christians, there's a little group of Christians, there's a group of Christians, we don't have many that have gone to Damascus. So Paul wants to go and get ahead of the Christian faith and stomp it out. Um, and then it's worth noting, I just want to pay attention to this. It's worth noting that he is seeking to find anyone that's part of the way. This, of course, is an early reference to the Christian movement. It's likely drawn from Jesus' own claims in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And I read that, and I thought, that is really interesting that we would talk about Christians being a part of the way right here. And I think the reason Luke is including this is because Saul is on his own way. He's on his own route. Here he is, filled with violence and hatred. He knows the way to have, you know, God at work, and he's going to do it. But the Christians, they have a different understanding of the way. So, Saul is on his way. Armed with authority from the high priest, he sets off to Damascus. And it would have taken about a week to get there. And then verse 3 picks up where he arrives with his entourage on the outskirts of Damascus. So let's go and look at this encounter he had on the outskirts of Damascus. Let's do that. Let's do that. There we go. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Let's take a little closer look here at what happened, okay? First, there is a light that shone around him. And suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. You know, Paul recounts his testimony two more times later on in the book of Acts. And we learn in Acts 22 that this was midday. So if you've ever been in the Middle East in midday, you can think about how bright it is, okay? It's, it's typically bright. It's a bright day. Okay, the sun is at its apex, and yet, as bright as it is, an even brighter light 
shines down. It says that it came from heaven and then shone around them. Okay? So imagine that. He and his entourage are there. They can, they're finally there. It's the end of the week. They've been traveling. Okay? Maybe they heard about Philip's work okay, when they went up through Samaria. But they're finally traveling, and they come to Damascus, and they can see the gates, and then suddenly this light that is above the sun comes beaming down, flashes all around them. They're immersed in it. It's so bright that it knocks him down. Okay? But notice what the text says. It's not just a light that was seen. Now, those who are with Paul, they don't see anyone. That's what it says at the end. Uh, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Okay? He and, his, he and his entourage were immersed in this light. But notice, even though they don't see anyone, we actually learn, if you read on, that Saul saw someone. Paul actually sees Christ. Uh, Paul doesn't just see this glorious light. He sees the glorified Christ. In verse 17, which we didn't read, Ananias says, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road. On verse 27 later on, Barnabas describes how, he, how, Paul had, how Saul had seen the Lord on the road. Quote, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and hear an utterance from his mouth. Later on in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is talking about the, the post-resurrections appearance, appearances of Christ, he says this, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by God's grace, I am what I am. Paul didn't just see a bright light. He saw the transcendent Christ, the glorified Christ, coming in that blazing light and appearing to him through that light. Let's look at the second phenomena in this encounter. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now this doubling address here, Saul, Saul, it's a, it's a personal address. Jesus is addressing him personally, Saul, Saul. And that doubling in Luke is, is used to imply an emphatic rebuke or warning. Martha, Martha, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Mary, Mary. And notice what Jesus says. Why are you persecuting me? This is astounding. Like, where was Jesus? Jesus wasn't in those homes being drug out. Jesus wasn't being uh, held in, in prison. Jesus wasn't being captured. Jesus wasn't fleeing for his life. And yet, what Jesus says is that anything happens to his church, it impacts him so deeply that he feels it as if it's himself suffering. Which is a beautiful thing if you're a Christian, that you know that your Lord suffers with you. We are the bride of Christ. And a true husband doesn't allow the wife just to suffer. He feels it. He enters into that suffering. That's how Jesus feels in the midst of this. When Paul relays his testimony the second time in chapter 22, we read that those with Paul could not make out the words. So he hears the direct words, Saul, Saul. They can't make out the words. Um, they, they, they both hear something, but he makes out the words. They both see a light, but he sees the transcendent risen Christ. All right, well, let's talk about the aftermath of this astounding event. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. 
wow, what? I mean, talk about a change of plans, okay? <laughs> if you've ever had a change, there's nothing like this change of plans. Here is this guy. He's heading into Damascus. He's in charge. He's got his entourage. And after this change of events, he's being led as a blind person. Okay, what do we know? We know he stopped. Jesus stopped him, okay? Just stopped him, all right? He's been stopped. Uh, and, and we know that he's been flattened, okay? He's been thrown to the ground. He's been knocked down. John Stott comments, he fell to the ground prostrate at the feet of his conqueror. This wild animal that was ravaging the church, Jesus just showed up in the road and dropped him. Later on, Paul would say in Philippians 3.12, I was apprehended by Jesus Christ. Like Jesus just got a hold of him and threw him down. Like, what are you doing? It's my bride. Stop it. He's been stopped, okay? You go mano a mano with Jesus, it ain't gonna end well, okay? He was stopped. Then he's shocked, okay? He's absolutely shocked. When Jesus says, I am Jesus who you are persecuting, can you imagine how in the world does that compute? Can you imagine the shock? Saul is just absolutely gobsmacked. This is unimaginable. The cognitive dissonance. He had it all worked out. This doesn't fit any of the theories. This completely breaks him. He has so much of a paradigm shift that he doesn't eat for three days. He's just overwhelmed. The good news, you know, I guess we can, reading this, I need to be more compassionate with people that don't understand the gospel. Because when we tell them that God came in the person of Jesus and Jesus is alive and that we talk to him every day, it's like, are you crazy? That's how he felt. Like, what? This is all true? And then he's not only stopped and shocked, he's made compliant. Okay? Like a wild animal that has been broken and submissive, uh, He's finally been broken in, or at least the beginning of the breaking begins. In chapter 26, Paul, Paul adds that when Jesus says, I'm, I'm Jesus who you are persecuting, he adds, it's hard to kick against the goads. And what's that about? What's a goad? Well, a goad is a tool, okay? It's like a stick with a, with a spear on the end, and you use it to direct typically an ox, like an ox goad, Okay? Um, in fact, there's a story in the Bible, it's in Judges 3, about Shamgar killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. So it's, it's a pretty wicked little tool you use. And when Jesus says it's hard to kick against the goads, what he's saying is, it's futile. What you're doing is futile. Saul, you're only going to hurt yourself fighting against me. When we take on God, the only person that gets hurt is us. God is not going to be damaged as a result of that. When you break God's will and God's commands, we only break ourselves. Jesus is saying, fighting me and fighting my lordship, you're only hurting yourself. You know, we don't make Jesus Lord. Jesus is Lord. The question is whether we're going to come and acknowledge it or we're going to hurt ourselves by denying it. And the reason is that there's nothing sweeter than coming underneath the lordship of Jesus. There's no more perfect freedom than being his servant. There's no better way to learn how to stand correctly than to bow your knee 
to Jesus, the world's true Lord. And so now Christ gives a command, okay? Rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what to do. And he's being led. This is a start of a new life for Paul. He's got a new Lord. Who are you, Lord? In chapter 22, what shall I do, Lord, is also added. This Lord commands Paul, rise and enter the city. This is the beginning of Paul's new life. Paul is now referring to Christ as Lord, and later on, Paul will refer to himself as a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. But right now, he just finds himself in shock. He's been spun around, and he's got to start all over a massive paradigm shift. Later on, Paul will say that he is like one untimely born. This is the beginning of a whole new life for him with a new name, okay? He went on from being in command of an entourage to being led by the hand. He went from being an expert in the law, judging others, deciding who lives and dies, to being blinded, which is a physical reminder of his lack of awareness of his spiritual condition. He encountered Jesus Christ and everything was turned upside down. And so in closing, I want to just look briefly at four things that this story tells us. And the first one is this. It has to deal with immunity. And here's the message of Acts chapter 9. No one's immune. No one is immune. Last week, we looked at the great outsider, the Ethiopian eunuch. This person was as far as you would think from the kingdom of God this incredible outsider, this misfit person that doesn't check the social identity categories, and the gospel came to the Ethiopian eunuch. Today, we look at the great enemy of Christianity, okay? The person who we say, you know what? There's no way. But as Pastor Josh said last week, the gospel is not for a category of people. Later on in the chapter, it's really hilarious. God says to Ananias, I want you to go and talk to Saul. And Ananias like, Lord, you got it wrong. That's the wrong person. We don't talk to him. And the Lord's like, go talk to him. He's, you know, I can do it, you know? So who is our Saul? Who is the one that we've written off? Because they just hate Christianity. They don't want anything to do it. They don't want anything to do it. They don't want to hear about it. You know, playing the drums up here was Vinny. When Vinny moved here to L.A. four or five years ago to work in the music industry, his roommate was a Christian. He didn't ask for that. He's an atheist. Guess what? His Christian starts talking about how he's met Jesus Christ. Vinny finally gets so over it as an atheist. Like, I hate, I don't, I want, I'm an atheist. He moves out. But even though he moved out, guess what didn't move out? The Holy Spirit kept using those words from that roommate. Came to know Jesus. Now he's playing drums. Who is our Saul? Number two testimony. You know, God uses testimony. Luke records Saul's testimony three times in the book of Acts. At the end of this section regarding Paul's conversion, we read this. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria was being built up. Being built up and multiplied. Why? The so there is referring to Paul's conversion. They couldn't believe it. The church couldn't believe it. Like, God rescued, like, that guy that came here to kill us is now, like, <laughs> proclaiming Jesus? God uses testimonies. 
The thing that was so powerful about Paul's testimony is you couldn't explain this guy. You couldn't explain him without Jesus. How did this guy become so intellectually, volitionally, emotionally, conceptually convinced when he was such an enemy? How did, how did that happen? One 18th century writer, having studied and explored all the possible explanations of Paul's about face, concludes, the conversion and apostleship of St. Paul alone, duly considered, is itself a demonstration sufficient to prove that Christianity is a divine revelation. What was it? It was that you could not explain this guy's life without Jesus being real. And by the way, that's the testimony God wants to use in all of our lives. I can't explain this person's life unless there really is something to this. That's how I became a Christian. I know my mom's watching. No offense, mom. But before my mom was a Christian, not such a good mom. The food wasn't very good. She was a smoker, not a very nice person. When I'm 12 years old and suddenly I'm getting three square meals a day, mom's dropped all the drinking and cigarettes and she's really nice, I'm like, how do you explain this? What is this? Have we gotten tired of sharing our testimony? You know, God wants to use our testimonies. We need to open our mouths that we have met Jesus Christ and we need to boldly and unashamedly let people know he's alive and he's got life to give us. So God uses testimonies. Number three, conversion. This story shows us what true conversion is. First, it starts with a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Saul, Saul, I am Jesus. Then there is a conviction of sin. Why are you persecuting me? Sin is always, always about something we've done against God. Against you and you alone, I have sinned. Then it results in submission. Who are you, Lord? What must I do, Lord? And then finally, it brings transformation. And what a transformation. You know, you know, Saul, before he was a Christian, he was marked by zeal. This was a guy that didn't want to mess around. All right? He was marked by zeal. And what happened when we became a Christian? God took that zeal and he, and he transformed it and used it instead of to bring, you know, hardship and, and prison in people's lives to bring life and health. And every single one of us that knows Jesus Christ, we came into this relationship with him with something that God has given us and he wants to transform it and use it. And that's what we see is the transformation that took place. And then God has a sense of humor. You know, here's Paul, the Jew of all Jews. He has this pedigree. I mean, he has done everything to make him like Mr. World-Class Jew. If anybody should be apostle to the Jews, it should be Paul. And what does God say? You're going to be apostle to the Gentiles. Oh, I have no qualifications for that. Everything that I counted as great to my name, it's all rubbish. I will do what God says. And sometimes God just calls us to go work in children's ministry. Like you never know. Like I'm, I don't work with it. Yep, sometimes God does that. You know, so we have to keep our mind open to what God might be calling us to. It may not be something that naturally fits. But there's always transformation. And God uses us. And then the final message from here is not only about conversion, the marks of true conversion. Where we meet Jesus, we're convicted of our sin, we, we become uh, humble and submissive, and then we are transformed. But the final message in this passage is about grace. It's about grace. You know, Paul thought he had it all figured out. He thought he was on the right side of history, so to speak. He thought he knew exactly what he needed to do, what he needed to be about. 
And Jesus Christ stepped in. And if Jesus Christ hadn't stepped in, he would have been lost, bringing damage. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. That is the mark of a Christian. I got nothing but grace. At the end of the day, my only hope is the grace of God. And Paul's conversion shows us really what it means to be a Christian. It's to be a person that knows that at the end of the day, all we have is God's grace that's been poured out for us in Jesus Christ.